Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Lift your eyes up, let your wives rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice... Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nalaya, and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is June 1st. 2016, the 95th anniversary of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Massacre, and you are tuned into the Black Talk Radio Network, 35 blocks housing 1,256 residences were destroyed, about 400 black people lost their lives, over 800 suffered injuries, and 10,000 were left homeless. The most prosperous black community in America burned to the ground with attacks by an all-white militia that included dropping bombs from planes on people's homes, public lynchings, and executions. We thought somebody ought to remember this day, and here at New Abolitionist Radio, we will. Tonight's program will be off the cuff, unplanned and organic. It's been an exciting week, and we'll delve into the week's events. Feel free to call in and join us at 1-641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Marvin Lamont Anderson, who became the 99th person in the United States to be exonerated due to post-conviction DNA testing. He was only 18 years old when he was convicted of robbery, 
sodomy, abduction, and rape. Anderson was released on parole 15 years later, but it took another 40 years to be exonerated. Our abolitionist in profile is William Wilberforce, 1759 to 1833, the politician. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? What's up, Johanna? I hear you with us, too. Yeah, um, let me, greetings to you, Max, and uh, greetings to you as well, uh, Johanna. Same old, same old on the grind, man, on that grind. Peace. Good to be here. Good to be here. Definitely missed your presence last week, brother. You always miss when you're not here, man. Indeed, indeed. We're going to make up for it tonight, though. The truth needs to be told every single day, so we're going to keep pushing. <laughs> Ain't that something, man? I, I had a little excitement going on uh, a couple of days ago. You know, we participated, Scotty Reed as well, in the uh, Burn and Bury event once again. Uh, our event wasn't as exciting as it was last year when we had kidnappings going on and police brutality and racism right there at the city hall. But it, it was very eventful. We we had a wonderful presentation. Yeah, um, I meant to ask you about that, Max. Um, because we uh, had John Sims on uh, to discuss, you know, the burning and bury and doing it, you know, making it an annual thing on Memorial Day, every Memorial Day. And, you know, um, there was a list of people participating, and I didn't even know uh, that y'all were doing that on Periscope. And I saw Max Parthis, you know, um, um, name listed there. And so, but I was on air with Black Talk Radio News while you were doing your presentation. But today I was looking for the video um, because Periscope records it, but I couldn't find uh, yours. Well, there's a reason for that, Brother Scotty Reed. Um, hey, I guess the only way that people are going to find out what we did is if I tell them or if we reenact it. Uh, what occurred was, you know, I didn't know until the day before John Sims contacted me and said, can you do it? And I was like, yeah, sure, of course I can do it. So we had one day of preparation. The day of the event, we were scheduled to be on at 4 p.m. And uh, when four, 10 minutes to 4, I turned off my phone and went outside with my wife to uh, get prepared for our presentation, which we had planned out. And apparently they changed our time right about that time <laughs> to 4.30. So we were on uh, from 4 to 4.30 when we were supposed to be on from 4.30 to 5. And none of it was streamed live. All we had was the witnesses who were here to see us participating in it. What my wife and I did was we started out with a poem by her called False Flags. And then I did an introduction uh, which talked about the history of the Confederate flag and what the people who created it thought it was about. And then finally, we started by burning a Confederate flag, and then we burned all 50 of the state flags while reading the state's mottos and quoting the rate of incarceration, black versus white, uh, in contrast with the population of the state to show how all of these flags and mottos were outright lies. And at the end of the uh, that process, we finished with another Confederate flag and used that as the torch to light this big fire pit full of nothing but flags up. It was pretty awesome. Well, I learned a lot about um, codification among these Confederate white supremacists and white supremacist wannabes and what have you, but I learned uh, something about their codification from 
of this professor, this, uh, I can't remember his name, Edward Podesta, something like that. Uh, but he came on after John did, and he was uh, uh, showing all these different flags that um, are associated with the Confederacy, different regimental flags and whatnot. And he was saying how some of these, I, I'm getting a lot of background noise off of um, oh, somebody's line. I can't see it right now, but um, he was talking about how these sororities, sorority, sororities, man, I'm not talking right today, or uh, these college frats and what have you, um, you may, they'll be flying these flags because they don't expect the general public and particularly black people to know you know these flags history and what have you so you think you know um that everything's okay on the campus and then right there hanging on the frat house is a confederate white supremacist flag and so you know that gave insight into you know i, I don't know what it is what is it with people's need to you know just engage in that sort of in, inhumane behavior, man. You know, that incorrect behavior like that. And just the lengths that they will go, you know, to codify their behavior and hide it from the public and what have you. So I learned a lot uh, from, from those presentations. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you put out in the video as well, giving credit where it was due for the Union soldiers. Because, you know, they were fighting against domestic enemies, basically, uh, in order to end slavery. And those domestic enemies are the ones who literally have their flags flying over the Mississippi capital right now. And at one point, over South Carolina's capital. Um, these treasonous, traitorous people who wanted to peddle flesh and was willing to die to fight for that cause. Uh, they should not be celebrated. We should look at that as a moment of shame on the American consciousness. But the truth is, that's how this country was founded. Absolutely, man. Just looking at the whole Memorial Day idea, I mean, not only what like we talked about in the uh, intro, talking about uh, Black Wall Street today, but, I mean, looking at Memorial Day, obviously, that holiday, uh, originally Decoration Day. I mean, just looking at the history of trying to end slavery in this country and the way that the powers that be and then of course the the ignorant and and largely racist or racist suspect masses that go along with the change to the narrative. You know, you had <clears throat> you had a war that had black union soldiers you know, making moves, man. Like, like you got to think about where we stand today with, you know, like programs like this, uh, the new abolitionist movement, uh, the the uh, the flag taking down the flag and burning the flag movements. I mean, Black Lives Matter, all these different movements and marching and talking and and looking to educate people and and mobilize people to to vote and to participate economically to make changes. All these different things that are going on, but in that in that civil war. You had people, you had black folks that were literally striking blows, like literally armed and, and trained in warfare, arriving on plantations and pulling white folks out their house and, and whooping their ass. I mean, this is hidden and covered up history of the actual Civil War. And when you see Decoration Day or when you see, you know, uh, folks that came together to to bury the bodies of those Union troops that were you know, in mass graves and, and held in prisons and these kind of things that they were kind of like the origins of Memorial Day. Uh, and you see what Memorial Day has been turned into 
this is what we're talking about in real time right now when we say controlling the narrative because to honor those people and to remember those kinds of revolutionary those types of abolitionist in action uh gestures that were made the lives that were lost the blood that was shed the the, the like i said the asses that was getting whooped to change those stories and make it about every war that we say we should be fighting you should be honored to join up and go serve and and protect this country so one day you can be honored one day we can you can you can have a memorial day that you can say i serve too it has nothing to do with what it started from and it's the same old narrative the reality happens and then these people come along and change it and guide the narrative where they want it and the masses are so quick and seemingly so happy to forget the reality of the truth. So the abolitionist uh, work is never done. You know, one important thing you I want to um, stress there, and you know, most people that have been uh, listening to me on the radio for the past seven years know that I'm a, a U.S. veteran, served in the military, uh, six years, communication specialist. Uh, participating. Yeah. I don't know if it's me, but you sound really bad, like uh, distorted me bad. Um, I think that's you. I I think that's you, Max. Um, and but I I am. I can hear you pretty clearly. Okay. Um. So uh, what I was saying was is that it's I I participated in the Gulf War. Um, I was forced to because I signed a contract. I was a low-paid mercenary. It's the way I look at it. You know, I only joined the military for college money, so I wouldn't go into debt, put my family in debt. You know, that 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 middle class poor people's draft that they got that nobody that hardly anyone wants to speak about. I see nothing honorable about what I did. I did not sacrifice anything for anyone. It was strictly business. Okay? I signed a contract in exchange for a certain amount of college money to serve in the United States military for X amount of years and uh, to follow orders and, and things of that nature. But, you know, that's that I wouldn't change that experience because my political awakening, you know, really came about um, while I was in Saudi Arabia reading Malcolm X's uh, biography and imagining him walking on the same streets I was walking down in Riyadh. So there's nothing honorable about that. There's no reason whatsoever you know uh, um, that uh, we should accept this narrative that every war is just there have only been two just wars that um, so called Americans have participated in that um, I would classify as as just and that's the Revolutionary War the American Revolutionary War and the Civil War and in both of those wars uh, black soldiers and what have you um, were uh, the tipping, um, you know, uh, point and what have you. Once they got into the fight, the fight was over. Okay, they tipped the scales of balance of power. Uh, whoever we sided with, or or you know, um, took up arms with, with for certain concessions for ourselves and what have you, you know, um, those would be honorable people worth memorializing. Um, you know, there's a big thing about the World War II vets, the Vietnam vets, and and all of that. And I'm, you know, World War II people were drafted; they were forced to go. Korea, they were forced to go. You know, Vietnam forced to go. 
Um, it was only after Vietnam did we, you know, implement a volunteer force where you had the middle class poverty draft and enticing people to come in for college money, either go in debt or sign up and serve your so-called country as a low rent uh, mercenary. So I think it's important that you pointed out, you know, those guys were actually signing up to end slavery. OK, you know, not for money, not for a college fund, you know. Um, not for anything other than putting an end to uh, unnecessary evil. You know, we hear about necessary evil. Slavery is just totally unnecessary. All it is about is one individual exerting his dominance over another individual, hold that person in servitude and what have you. So, you know, uh, again, you know, those are the only soldiers that I would be, um, as a veteran, that I uh, memorialize. Indeed. Indeed. Well said. I was of two minds myself about Memorial Day. I didn't uh, celebrate it. I didn't even really mention it. And uh, the two minds is just what you were just talking about right there. You know, it started out with children and African-Americans formerly enslaved uh, trying to do honor to the Union soldiers uh, who fought for freedom. And now it's, as you said, it's progressed to now we must celebrate this military industrial complex regardless of what they're doing. They can go and destroy nations like Libya, and we're supposed to celebrate them as heroes when they come back. And the first thing I see on uh, Libya is black Libyans in a cage forced to eat a Libyan flag on video. And this is what that failed state has fallen into, a genocide with Hillary Clinton giggling about how she killed their leader. Um, you know, and we see the same thing with Iraq and all across uh, the African continent, really. So it's hard for me to say thank you for that because you're not fighting for freedom. You're fighting for oppression. You're fighting to oppress other nations who couldn't touch us if they wanted to. They, they don't have enough boats. They don't have enough planes. They have no way of getting to us, and yet we're there killing them saying it's about freedom and justice for America. And here in America, we've got the largest prison population in the history of mankind on planet Earth. And most of them are people of color. And yet you tell me you're fighting for freedom? I don't think so. That's the ugly reality I came to, man, while I was sitting in, in um, you know, Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. I, I, you know, reading Malcolm X's biography um, just really just took me to another uh, level of consciousness about, you know, um, um, the geopolitical moves that are being made in the, by people in power and then people who are uh, being used as cannon fodder. You know, um, like you know uh, myself and many, many others. Yeah. So from memorial. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, nothing, brother. Go ahead. I was gonna say so from Memorial Day and just talking about the uh, the the uh, way that that has has come about to to represent you know militarization and and blind support of us invading and uh, destabilizing any and every country on the planet that is not already down and on board with us so we can rape their resources and occupy their lands you know that's uh, that's what it comes from you know is an is an honest to goodness 
uh, effort from people back in the day that were a part of the war to end. They were in it to end slavery. So you can see the connection. You know, we're trying to abolish slavery and willing to shed blood, willing to fire arms to go fight hand to hand to do it. Um, and and this is this is what's come of it today. If you don't support Memorial Day, you you know you could get attacked by somebody that would. How dare you not support the troops? And it's like. Wow, it's just amazing how the narratives are always changed in this country. So from that to uh, we're going into Black Wall Street more in depth. Or... Um, sure. Uh, Max, did you want to lead us into that topic about Black Wall Street and make the connection to slavery? Um, certainly. Uh, let me start out by You're coming in real low. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. All right, let me start out by reading a couple of quotes from an eyewitness who was there. He said, the sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from. And I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top, he continues. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where, oh where, is our splendid fire department with its half dozen stations, I asked myself. Is the city in conspiracy with the mob? Buck Colbert Franklin's 1879 to 1960, I witnessed account of the attacks on Tulsa, June 1st, 1921. He also said, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building down East Archer. I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire burning from its top. And then another and another and another building began to burn from their top. Buck Colbert Franklin, 1879-1960, eyewitness account on the attack of Tulsa, Oklahoma, June 1st, 1921. Uh, this is being called the Tulsa Riots today. If you look at the newspaper headline of the day, that's not what they said then. At that time, they called it race wars. Uh, the Tulsa World headlines of the day said, dead estimated at 100. City is quiet. 5,000 Negro refugees guarded and camped at county fairgrounds. 52,000 to start fund for relief. Negroes gladly accept guards in the wake of Tulsa's race war. Well, let me tell you something. It was neither a race war, nor were they riots. See, in order to have a war, you need two opposing forces. An invading force on a helpless community is not a war. That is simply a massacre, which is what exactly happened. And it was neither a riot, because these weren't black people in the streets burning and looting and tearing things down. These were white people. It was an organized, well-armed militia that, as you heard from the reports of eyewitnesses, even had airplanes dropping bombs on the tops of the most prosperous black community in America at the time, Black Wall Street. All of those people, 10,000 displaced. No one has ever faced charges for any of it. Not a single person. The only thing I've ever heard about Black Wall Street and Tulsa, Oklahoma is in 2013 when the sheriff of Tulsa, Oklahoma decided to apologize for Black Wall Street. 
Did they Today pay you any reparations? We remember that day. Today we remember it. Uh, they want you to remember 9-11? Screw 9-11. Remember Tulsa, Oklahoma, and don't accept the false narratives. We know exactly what it is. The same people that would do that then are alive today. Their children, direct prodigy, are alive today, being taught the same morals and values and things that they did then. You have to be on guard for that again today. That is all. Indeed, man. Just remembering the day, like you said, and just understanding, you know, just like we just covered the uh, Civil War information and talking about, you know, how the country was split, you know, over slavery and there was a, a, a an avenue for our people to to go to war, you know, and fight to end it and how that's been changed around. I mean, the same thing applies to this time period. You know, the country itself has, a, I mean, an entire history of race riots, as they're called. You know, these are, a riot to me would indicate that the people just start tearing things up and burning it down and going off and flipping out because they wanted something. You know, like how they try to to categorize what happened in Ferguson. Like they try to categorize what we saw in Baltimore. Now, mind you, ignoring the fact about the people, like we proved Ferguson is America, we proved that slavery modern day right now and the motivation and the financial incentive behind that that drives this police terrorization of these citizens is very similar to these times when you had white citizens that were looking at these blacks that were thriving and doing their own thing. These people did not need even though there was laws that created segregation at the time, but they did not need to go outside of their community. The money stayed in the community anywhere from 20 to 100 times, you know, would circulate, circulate around the community because they could not shop outside of there. So these idiots hadn't even figured out how and had too much pride to allow the black folks to spend their money with them. That's how full of racism and hate they were. And as a result, they watched these people pool their money and build a professional uh, uh, professional services for themselves, doctors' offices. Uh, there was there was numbers that we're just talking about, like uh, 600 businesses in 36 square blocks, a population of over 15,000 African Americans. Um, let's see, they're say, talking about uh, 28 different uh, townships all around in the areas. I mean, so these people had their stuff together. Said during that era, physicians owned medical schools. So people who were physicians actually were training other people to come up to become physicians. They didn't have to go outside of their community. Owning medical schools. One doctor in the town was said to have been earning about $500 a day. So these people were self sufficient. Pawn shops, Yes, they had their own transit system, the bus currency. Yes. So this is what was driving the hatred of the outside folks. When they're looking at these people, they had two of their own movie theaters. I read one thing that said during in the entire state of Oklahoma at the time, there was only two airports, and there was six black folks that lived in this area that owned their own planes. So you can imagine it was just a tinderbox just waiting to jump off, and this is set against a backdrop in America that during this same time period, it's not just 1921 Tulsa. If you just go back to, to Jack Johnson uh, during that time, they had race riots over him in a championship fight in 1910. And this is the country that had been having race riots for 200 years at least, back to the 1700s, all through the 1800s, and Reconstruction period, Jim Crow period, after World War One. 
East St. Louis, Philadelphia, Houston. I mean, they called it Red Summer of 1919. All these race riots, Chicago race riot, Omaha, Texas, Knoxville, Tulsa, Springfield, Ohio, Rosewood. I mean, you can go on and on and on talking about literally hundreds of times that white folks came into black folks' neighborhoods I guess still hurt, but hurt that they didn't have straight up slaves on a plantation, that they didn't have the ability to force these people to stay broke and uneducated and in the mud and dehumanized, and they went on about their own business, minding their own business, thriving and growing, and it just continued to be the same attitude again and again. Go in there, attack them, destroy them. There were several black Wall Streets around America, not just Tulsa. We're honoring Tulsa today. But Durham, North Carolina was a strong one for years from late 1800s all through until they destroyed that as well. People, you need to know the history, but we're honoring this, we're honoring this town today, and these people were, were massacred. What did you say, Max, like 100 or 200 was somebody said? I've read reports that said it was over 3,000 black folks killed. Uh, from the reports that I've just pulled up recently, it said, and the headline said, 100 dead, 800 injured, 10,000 displaced and homeless. But those are under reports, you know. They're not going to tell you how many people they killed because it only makes them look worse. You have to ask the people who were there. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm Max Fontasy with Scotty Reed, Johanna Elia. There's a couple of stories that I didn't want to mention. One before, is, hey, Max, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Before you move on from Tulsa, I just want to tie it to you know, slavery. I want to tie it to abolitionism um, because like I've talked about many times, I believe we discussed this concept on this program, but the the Tulsa massacre um, was, a, a, was an act of a racism and terrorism, racist terrorism. That's what it was. And, you know, I think it was Johanna saying you see these sort of uh, uh, occurrences dot all throughout the history of this nation and what have you but 
you know, let's all trace it all the back. Where did all of this racial animosity come from? Where did all this racial hatred come from? How did white supremacy get codified into law? Okay. And you had to go to the slave codes. You had to go to the Virginia Colony slave codes in the 1600s. Um, that I could be um, um, lacking uh, information about some of the other colonies, but from what I've read, that's the first place that what people have uh, termed as white supremacy, um, codification and whatnot, which is also can mean laws, codes, and laws mean the same thing. Those occur in the Virginia Slave Code. So again, all of this are, are all of these uh, things are symptoms of slavery symptoms of slavery so i just wanted to tie the connection into what we discuss here 21st century slavery and, and human trafficking to that historical event that occurred the tulsa massacre indeed scotty it's always connected to slavery if you remember uh plessy versus ferguson was just uh, about a decade or so prior or well, a couple of decades prior to the attack on Tulsa, which also came out of Oklahoma. And today there is a uh, burgeoning familiarity with prison for profit in Oklahoma. Uh, we just put up a, a note on New Abolitionist Radio titled Punishment and Profits, A Brief History of Private Prisons in Oklahoma. So not much has changed. And if you remember also, this is 1921, prison uh, convict leasing didn't end until 1928 in Alabama, allegedly. So we were talking about during the height of convict leasing. More than likely, they just saw them as somebody else to put into their prisons and send to work. I wonder how many ended up in prison for that day. Wow. But you had said you wanted to go into uh, into another story, though, Max. I think Scotty tied it all all together. There. Well, we're going to put up a couple. We put up a couple of links on New Abolitionist Radio for you to uh, familiarize yourself with the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Black Wall Street, and uh, to discard those ideas and words that are being thrown around about riots and race wars. Uh, this was a massacre, and nothing less done by domestic enemies of the United States upon American soil against American citizens, and no one has ever paid for those offenses, and the only reason they haven't is because they were white, and I dare anybody to dispute that. Hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Well, let me move on to some of the stories that are coming out uh, in addition. One thing is uh, in the media. You know, I was really excited when Underground came out. I watched that series, and it lived up to everything that I expected of what was going to occur just based on the previews that I had seen. It was something different uh, that portrayed our people as heroes in this. Even though they weren't the wealthy ones, they were the most they were the richest of those when it comes to honor and dignity and survival and handling what they had to handle. So it really gave a new light to the experience through Underground, and uh, I applaud them for that. I had trepidations about Roots. I was hesitant from the very beginning um, because I thought at this point, they're going to come out with something that's going to try to counter the narratives that we have been developing, which we saw unfold in uh, media like Underground. So I flipped on Roots the other night with my wife. 
I was open-minded. I'm like, we're going to watch this and, and see what it's like. I didn't get five minutes in. In the very opening scenes, they felt it was necessary. I don't know why. It's not explained. But somebody thought it was necessary to explain, using Lawrence Fishburne's lips, that during this period that Kunta Kinte was growing up, there was an African slave trade where Africans were enslaving each other. And the white men showed up to exploit their greed. Now, I have no idea why somebody would want to insert that narrative at the very start of Roots. It wasn't there the first time around, so why is it there now? Where what they're doing, in my opinion, is no more than trying to alleviate white guilt and white responsibility for the slave trade by blaming the blacks for their own enslavement again. Saying, yo, y'all was already doing this to each other. We just tapped into the resources. I've never heard anybody blame the Jews for dying in the Holocaust. I never heard somebody say, you know what? Them Jews died, six million of them, it's all their fault. They was already killing each other. We just came in and exploited their murderous rage. So why would somebody want to do that in Roots? In any case, to make a long story short, I couldn't go any further than that. For me, that said it all. Like, this is the narrator. This isn't part of the tale. This is the narration. Starting out from the very beginning, telling you it ain't our fault. You did it to yourself. Now go on and watch the rest. I couldn't watch anymore, and I didn't. I clicked it right off. Well, um, <laughs> sound like your experience was similar to mine. Um, I actually, I think I might have been checking out the uh, some of the game between the Warriors and the Thunders that night. So, you know, just checking the score, flipped through the channel, saw Roots. I was like, let me click on this. Watch uh, the scene I saw um, was Kunta Kente first, you know, the scene about him, um, you know, arguing with the dude about what his name was, Toby Kunta Kente. Then they were out working. Him and this other enslaved African had these barrels that they were loading onto the wagon. And, um, uh, of course, they were being supervised by, I forget the house Negro's name, or, or what was his name? It, it wasn't Chicken George, it's the other guy. But anyway, so they dropped the barrel, and then the one enslaved Africans then starts fighting and, and hitting uh, Kunta Kente calls, calling them, you know, you lazy or something like to that effect, blaming him, you know, for dropping the thing, and then they're fighting each other. And then next thing you know, uh, the white uh, racist uh, foreman or plantation overseer is kicking on Kunta Kente. And then I like, man, I, I turned it off, man. That's all I could watch. Now, listen. A lot of people don't know this. I did a program on this yesterday uh, based off of what, you know, uh, the conversation that was sparked by what Snoop Dogg said. All right. Now, um, I started doing a little more research, and I saw that um, Alex Haley actually admitted. Well, let me read this passage for you. I have read that um, Roots was plagiarized that those characters, especially in his lineage and, and what have you, are all made up, okay? Um, and I didn't go, you know, I didn't have enough time to spend further research. I just wanted to verify. So this is showing up everywhere. Haley, Alex Haley said he he was accused of plagiarizing uh, um, the book, The African, which was written by a white person, all right? 
So when you wonder why at, uh, uh, some of the scenes seem so brutal and whatnot, and or, because you might be getting your story from a white person, the white person who wrote the African, but this is what Alex Haley said. He did not plagiarize, but admitted that some sections of Roots seem to have originally appeared in the African. Alex Haley regrets that various materials from the African by Harold Corlander found their way into his book Roots said uh, a statement by the author that was uh, uh, published in 2011 okay so so um, you know again I always try people try to say well WWJD y'all know what that mean right what would the Jews do would the Jews be complaining about you know Schindler's List or or anything like that. No, they wouldn't because Steven Spielberg's a Jew. Okay, the people who distribute that 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 film are more than likely Jews. So what I'm saying is, European Jews are in control of their stories. They're in control of the mass communication of those stories, and so the two situations are not even comparable. And so then this is again with us being moved by emotion and not logic. And then we're we're crying, you know, we we, you know, want to stand up for a plagiarized uh, movie written by, uh, you know, at, based on a book actually written by a white person from that white perspective and what have you. So, you know, that that's all I got to say about it. But I was shocked and saddened to hear that Alex Haley had plagiarized uh, sections. Well, he admitted to plagiarizing some sections, but he did settle out of court as well. So I'm like, who owns the rights to this new Roots movie? Who's getting paid? Alex dead. Who's getting paid? You know, whose estate is this money going to? But like, you know, I gave it a chance. Five minutes, I'm seeing black on black violence. I turned it off. I didn't even give it a chance. (laughs) <laughs> I already, already knew when we had such a uh, such a, a wholesome and fulfilling experience out of the uh, underground program. Um, actually, when underground was still on, kind of finishing up their season, I started seeing the Roots commercials, and it, it was just obviously, you know, cut from a different cloth. And even as a child, you know, I remember my parents were never really down with. with you know, sitting down and spending the week to watch Roots or whatever. I can remember in elementary school going to school, you know, and the, the uh, you know, kids would be talking about Roots or whatever and, and this and that. And I really didn't know what was going on because we just didn't we just didn't watch it. My, my parents were, were like, this is ridiculous. And um, as I got older and had a chance to watch it, you know, I kind of kicked in on it a little bit here and there and picked up some of the some of the pop culture references people would make and just kind of familiarize myself. But it's just never been something I could that I could justify sitting down and, and getting all deep into for my own self. So when they came back out with this remake, I'm like, this is this is showing itself to be one of those tried and true tools that white supremacy can pull out and use, you know, shine it up, put a new coat of paint on it, and put it back out there. And it's like the dog whistle type politics, the dog whistle type racism, the same uh, the same frequencies that it that it speaks to. It gets the same reaction out of the same kinds of people and we're trying to reach folks and and help like Max always says we're trying to change your mind about slavery we're trying to change the way you see what's going on the way you think about what's going on so to me underground represents the new underground represented 
what we're trying to get you to understand what we're trying you know they paint a picture right there in a in a show for you to understand what what we're really talking about roots to me is 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 regressing so i had no desire to see it in the first place i'm glad i didn't watch it i, I it's a joke yeah i'm i think they were just trying to maybe exploit uh the success that underground was having and it was just some white supremacists doing it said you know we're just going to go ahead and put our narrative in here because you know ever since henry lewis gates uh, came out with that article about how blacks were enslaving blacks uh, white people are really uh, white supremacists. Let me separate that. Have really grasped onto that as their go-to thing. Well, it's not our fault. You guys were already doing it to each other. See, Henry Louis Gates even said so. The black guy said so, so it makes it true. Well, that wasn't the case. Just like the slavery of the Israelites is not the same slavery that we exist uh, exist here with today and have existed for 400 years. The slavery in Africa was not the same either. then either. Often, people who were defeated of the tribes and taken into that tribe as slaves ended up marrying into the uh, tribe, or they ended up buying their way out, or working their way out. It was not something that went on perpetually from father to son, to father to son, to father to son, until the end of time. That's not the type of slavery that they dealt with. So when you're comparing the two, there is no comparison. What you're dealing with here is chattel slavery, where people are placed into a perpetual lower class and then farmed like they were animals on a farm to be put into cages. So every single head that lays in a bed makes you money. So you have an entire force of a million, a million strong occupying men and women whose primary position in the community is to feed the machine called prison to keep them full. And I'm not saying that just off the top. I know, just like my brothers here know, and our listeners who are regular listeners know, that these states have guaranteed contracts with the prisons that say they will be full 80 to 100% for up to 25 years. And if you don't keep them full, the taxpayer is responsible for any empty beds. In order to alleviate this taxpayers' burden, uh, which they call a low-crime tax, men and women and children are trafficked across state borders to fill contractual obligations of occupancy. So that means that you commit a crime in Hawaii, you're going to end up in a prison in Arizona. So they can keep that 100% occupancy filled. Well, brothers, that's why I say off the cuff today, man, because I could talk all week. Speaking of some of the stuff to talk about, uh, there is another story that I want to mention, unless you guys have one that you want to get on at this point. No, no, go ahead, bro. There's a news report that came out of Alabama. Now, mind you, for the past couple of months, all we've been talking about really is Alabama. One thing after another prison strikes, uh, not even strikes, rebellions, uh, people fighting for their life to uh, end slavery, a movement within the prisons and outside of the prisons going on. And consistently you see these different article comes out that shows what's happening in Alabama, like the police force who was discovered to have been targeting African Americans for the past 30 years and were KKK members. Well, now we have a teacher 
in a middle cl- uh, school class who issued out a test and told the children that it was serious, that it wasn't no joke, even when the kids asked if this was some kind of joke. And the math test is structured in such a way, it's one of the most offensive things I've ever seen. For instance, question number one. Ramon has an AK-47 with a 30-round clip. He usually misses six out of every 10 shots, and he uses 13 rounds per drive-by shooting. How many drive-by shootings can Ramon attempt before he has to steal enough ammunition and reload? Question number two. Leroy, Leroy has two ounces of cocaine. If he sells an eight ball to Antonio for 320 and two grams to one for $85 per gram, what is the street value of the uh, rest of his hold? One more question. One more question. It's a whole list of them. Just going to be one more. Just the top three in a row. Dwayne pimps three hoes. If the price is $85 per trick, how many tricks per day must each hoe turn to support Dwayne's $800 per day crack habit? Dude, you know, in my entire life with my wife, 30 years now, I have never asked her to do anything violent on my behalf. But if I ever saw this teacher, if she's a woman, and we'll find out in the story, I would ask my wife to kick her ass right there. Because that's what they, that's what a person like this needs. They need to ask with, and they need to be banished from this country. You don't deserve a home. You don't deserve a country. You deserve to get the hell out of Dodge. Be banished like they used to do people to Australia. Because you can't exist in a community with thoughts like this. You can't be around children with thoughts like this. You are a menace to society. You should be away from people, you damn sociopath. Dude, y'all go ahead and talk about it a minute. I need to breathe. Because it's really, I'm a father of six. I've raised 10. I've got my 15th grandchild coming up. The last thing I ever want to see is something like this happening to my children, to see them being tortured like this in 2016 in a classroom by some racist demon. Sick, man. But, I mean... Unfortunately, this is par for the course. This is this is what you're going to get, people. This is what you're going to get. This is why we talk about slavery, because that's really where the foundation is laid. The settlers colonized the land, committed genocide against the people that was here, kidnapped and enslaved, tortured, raped, murdered, everything, African youth for 300-plus years. That mentality and, and that that way of seeing people and then scapegoated all of these victims. Scapegoated all of them. All of them deserved it some kind of way. The, the genocide against the natives. They deserved it because they were savages and they didn't know, you know, they didn't know Christ and they didn't know this and they didn't know that. Every kind of lie could be told to justify why they did what they did to these people. Same thing for, for black folks. You know, justifying the treatment. And this kind of an incident is that see we're living in it live right now so it doesn't seem to have it doesn't have any historical perspective right now but in 50 years if we have not ended this if we have not made the turn as a nation 
as, as a group of people within this nation for our own selves to become autonomous and not have to deal with this. If we have not moved forward in 50 years, and 100 years, this kind of an incident will be in a history book and will be just as explained and just as discussed and just as much to piss people off, but really ain't nothing changed as, as what we just talked about the Tulsa race riots. Well, we just talked about all these race riots and all of these, you know, attacks against folks or whatever that have been going on for hundreds of years. This is an attack on those children, not just the black ones, any white ones that took the test. That is an attack on a white child's sanity, on that person's ability to develop empathy, on that person's ability to grow up not racist, to see this kind of a thing done. It's... But we remember last summer we had, what, uh, 20 teachers in Atlanta school district that went to prison for uh, uh, what they helping the kids on the test some kind of way, uh, falsifying scores, where they all went to prison. And you've got dozens of white women that rape students every, every year that never do any prison time. And it's joked about, like, oh, you want to be hot for teacher. You had sex with your teacher. That is rape. And they don't do any jail time. So we see these inequalities that still stem from the base foundation of slavery and inhumane treatment of people based on the color of their skin. And like Scotty pointed out, the slave codes that created that environment and supported that and legalized that treatment, a lot of those things are not off the books still to this day. So, I mean, we're, just, we, we're, in, we're in a big... We're in a big mess, and we need people to get serious about what's going on and to and to start finding ways to cut themselves away from the system because this is what the system's going to give you. It's not going to be any different. It's working the way they designed it. Let me let me read the article. It's really short, um, just for the sake of letting people who don't have access to the Internet to be able to hear what it said. A mobile Alabama parent is fuming over a 10-question math quiz her 8th grader took last Friday. Erica Hall told reporters from Mobile Fox 10 that her son, who attends Burns Middle School, sent her a picture of the quiz as he was taking it. The picture reveals disturbing and graphic math word problems, including Leroy has two ounces of cocaine. If he sells an eight ball Antonio for 320 and two grams to one for $85 per gram, what is the street value of the rest of his hold? And also, Tyrone knocked up four girls in the gang. There are 20 girls in his gang. What is the exact percentage of girls Tyrone knocked up? Most of the questions revolved around topics such as prostitution, drugs, and drive-by shootings. Fox 10 reports that the teacher has been placed on administrative leave over the controversial quiz. They took it as a joke, and she told them that it wasn't a joke. And they had to complete it and turn it in, Paul said. Since the incident, Hall and her husband went to school to get answers. This is how slavery exists. This is institutional racism. You got yeah. a dozen teachers like that in the community. You think she don't talk at the coffee table with some friends who agree with her? You think she came up with the idea all by her lonesome? Like, oh, you know what I think I'll do? I'll do this. No, she got buddies. And they're part of the education system. And they're torturing our children. And they're pushing this racist agenda into the non-black children's minds as well. Creating the division of you versus me at an early age. And they're, while they're still forming their own thoughts. 
This is what's being fed into them at a public school. We can't have people like this around us. You can't be a cop. You can't be a judge. You can't be a teacher. You can't be a doctor. You can't. You might be able to be a lawyer because lawyers are pretty dirty to begin with. Maybe you can be a lawyer, but not all kinds of lawyers. You can't be a defense attorney, for instance. You can't be a prosecutor. There's a lot of things you can't do if you're a racist. Do you not understand there is no such thing as an unbiased racist. <laughs> wow. Well, we like to uh, ourselves, brothers. Yeah, like uh, Sean King said in the, in in, in uh, his article, um, you know, pointed out some things that just really lay it out. And now think about this: individually, you take a lot of flack for raising an issue with any of these things. But collectively, this paints a picture of how how we live in. He said, uh, then I remember, he's just talking about how flagrant and outrageous what he said, I remember we live in a day and age where George Zimmerman sold the gun he killed Trayvon Martin with for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Donald <laughs> Trump's the presumptive Republican nominee for President of the United States. Police officers are being outed as undercover members of the KKK and exposed as deeply racist in departments all over America. So of course a teacher could uh, teacher could decide to give her students the most flagrantly flagrantly racist math test of all time, and I mean that's really kind of the whole point. Like I said, individually, and I'm I see it all the time because uh, you know I use my social media outlets just for the purpose of uh, stirring up you know the the conversation on these kind of issues because if not they're going to be swept under the rug. You're going to continue to have black folks that are building up frustration and anger and dissatisfaction with the way that, the, you know, the system is treating them, with, the, with the, the way that they're living day to day, but not saying anything about it. And you're going to continue to have racists and racist suspects who can walk around with their chest out and their head held high, acting like they're not what they really are. So when you continue to confront these issues and bring them out and force people to have conversation about it, you find out where they stand, but at least you can have an opportunity to get the facts out there and they can be discussed. And when I see this day in, day out about every kind of issue that comes up, there's so many dissenters, black, white, Latino, that will come in and try to shut down the truth stories and try to shut down the, why you even talk about this? I'm so tired of hearing about it. I just wish we could move on, on and on and on. But the, every single time, they are totally ignoring the people who are victims of these individual acts. And when you take those individual acts and put them all together, like he just mentioned, just three or four things. I mean, it was a thing I was watching about Fort Lauderdale police officer just uh, yesterday, I think it was, that went before uh, uh, city... Um, uh, arbitrator that came in, he's been petitioning to get his job back after he had on his personal mm -hmm. cell phone a, a series of text messages straight up calling black folks niggas, 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 just on and on and on. He had some kind of video on his uh, phone of some kind, I don't know, I think it might have been like raping a black woman or, or beating up some black folks or something. This dude had photos of racist stuff and jokes and memes, you know, and he got caught and he got fired. And he went before the city council and the people that would decide to give him his job back or not. And he sat there straight, straight backed and, and flat faced and just squared whatever and said, I had reason to believe I was told that I had privacy 
on my personal phone. I, I was told that nobody would, would be able to see that or be able to use that against me, so I don't see why I would lose my job over that. I was told that this would not be made public. That's his reason that he wants his job, job back. He don't even have to say that I was wrong. This was I shouldn't have did this. I'm sorry. I'm making amends. I'm doing community service. I adopted a black kid. I mean, nothing. He said they told me that they, this couldn't be used against me. So I need you, my job back. Did you hear what the chief said in reply? Yeah. <laughs> on the video, I just put it up on New Abolitionist Radio so others can see it as well. But apparently the chief had a problem with the language and communications. They said, you know, we can't allow this type of language and the communications to be uh, within our officers. See, the, it ain't got nothing to do with language and communications. You can stop saying racist things. You can stop... Uh, writing racist things It doesn't stop you from being a racist exactly. You will still Enact your racism in any way That you can If you hated black people yesterday And your police chief said You can't say I hate black people anymore Tomorrow is not going to be a hate free day It's going to be the same thing So their Perspective of what was wrong With this instance Isn't about language and communications It's about the way a person thinks What's in their heart and what's in their mind? You can't legislate hate away. Wow, man, we got our hands full, you know. And again, I, I can remind people that these things we're discussing is all based on the foundation of slavery. Right, right. And you know, here's the sad part, bro. This is the real sad part. There's a few people in positions of very high power right now who knows fully well that racism is an illusion, that there is no such thing as black, white, red, or yellow. There are nationalities, but they use that in a way to keep the perpetual money machine of slavery going, what we call today prison for prostitution, mass incarceration. The real bad part is the people on the bottom only do it because of the color of your skin. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're going to get on to our next story. I just first want to make it understood that we know here, our listeners know, and for those that are new listeners, you're about to find out, police, the police departments across America, their origins began as slave catchers, the night watchmen. That's how they began, as slave catchers. There was a point in history, as a matter of fact, here in South Carolina, where every citizen, every citizen was required by law to turn in escaped slaves. Everybody was a slave catcher at one point, and if you didn't, you would go to jail. Eventually, they started forming these organizations, which became what we know today in the South as police forces. They haven't changed much at all in that period of time. And as a matter of fact, the next story, if Scotty, if you can, uh, there's a story, a video on New Abolitionist Radio 
uh, titled CBS Chicago, and it's a follow-up story on what we talked about here on New Abolitionist Radio a few weeks back about a pastor, a black woman in Chicago who was uh, stopped with her children in the car by a policeman there in Chicago, assaulted, her car was uh, rammed, she was beaten, she was tased, abused, and all because she wanted the police to get out of the way so she could park her car in her driveway. They were blocking her driveway. And in, instead, she ended up getting beaten down and tased and treated like an animal while her children watched. I'd like to show or let you hear the follow-up story on what has been discovered since that time. It only proves that we can tell you what's going to happen before it even happens, apparently. Scott, you got that? that never happened and arrested a woman for buying legal prescription drugs. She's the same police officer we told you about who had a violent struggle with the Chicago Reverend. Now, two investigator Dave Savini is looking into other complaints about this cop. Catherine Brown says all she was trying to do is get in her driveway and that you threatened her life. Officer Michelle Morsey Murphy is the cop who rammed her squad car into a vehicle containing Reverend Catherine Brown and her two small children then used pepper spray and pointed her gun at Brown. It's a sad situation. She needs to be off of the street. Within a year of Brown's incident, two other serious cases were made against the officer. In one, Morsi Murphy, while off duty at night, called 911 to report this man robbing a 7-Eleven when he was just buying snacks. I see a knife. But this 7-Eleven surveillance footage shows there was no knife and no robbery. And Morsi Murphy didn't even seem clear on who robbed the store. The gray hoodie, a white guy. He's Mexican. There's three male blacks. And when these men who did nothing wrong leave... Oh my God, they're getting in the car, they're getting in the car. Morsi Murphy follows them down this street. Listen as she's told a few times by the 911 operator to calm down. Um, Listen as Morsi Murphy says they went on to rob another place, this gas station. I guarantee you they robbed this gas station. Again, not true. According to IPRA records, they never even stopped at the gas station, let alone robbed it. On-duty officers caught up with the car here in this Mount Greenwood neighborhood. With guns drawn, they pulled the three men from the car, questioned, handcuffed, and searched them. Meanwhile, other officers responding to the 7-Eleven learn there was no robbery. There's an allegation that you called 911 and made a bogus robbery call. Another complaint against Morsi Murphy says she arrested a woman and locked her up overnight on felony possession of a controlled substance. The so-called illegal drugs were actually a prescription and still inside a Walgreens bag. The woman had just picked it up here at this Walgreens at 115th in Halstead for her 84-year-old mother. Anything to say about these allegations and all your other complaints? If the police act out in such a reckless way, they have to be accountable for their actions. The Independent Police Review Authority is looking to reopen Catherine Brown's case. In the prescription drug arrest, a federal lawsuit against Morsi Murphy and the city was settled. She also received a 30-day suspension for the false robbery call. In 10 years, she's had 19 complaints. Despite repeated requests, the city has not turned over to us all those complaint records. And, you know, our first story on Brown went viral. But despite all that national attention, the police still won't comment on the specifics of the case. They cite pending litigation. And right now she's on duty, but you don't know the status of whether they're going to reopen it or not. They won't tell us what her status is. But you see a gun on her hip. You see that she's still working. Hmm. They won't even tell us what her job is right now. All right. Dave, thank you. This woman is a menace to society. 
wearing a badge and a gun. She's uh, apparently in the drug use, and she has shown that she gets a couple complaints every year that nobody ever cares about. At one point, where they she accused the man of stealing at the drugstore, and then followed him down the road, that could have ended up in that man's death. I mean, it was could have happened so easy. She had already assumed he went in not only and robbed the drugstore, but he robbed the gas station too. And all the dude did was buy some stuff from the drugstore. What do you mean? What do you mean? Assume there was no assumption. She didn't assume that they were robbing it. I mean, they she lied. That you know, assumption means I made a false assumption. I assumed something that turned out not to be true. She lied. They didn't even yeah, stop at the, the second gas, gas station, station that she said they robbed. Never even stopped there. Okay, so she lied. There was no assumptions here. This was just a blatant, flat-out lie. Reminds me of the Richie dude who called on John Crawford and blatantly lied, and nothing happened to him. And it resulted in John Crawford being murdered by police. So this woman also sounded on that call to me like she might have been on some kind of drugs or something, some kind of stimulant like crystal meth or something, man. I, I don't know. But again, these un- police unions need to be abolished. <coughs> that is why she's still on the force. And then you got Louisiana passing the Blue Lives Matter law. When you got crooks like this, you know, man, I, I'm just disgusted. Reminded me when you were talking about how unfit, you know, the cop is, what have you, just reminds me of these other stories of where, you know, folks have been killed, uh, you know, by these cops that have been fired from other departments. I mean, Darren Wilson had uh, been in another department. Timothy Lohman killed Tamir Rice. You know, didn't even make it as a cop with every department he he applied for. So I mean, you talk about unfit individuals, and then when you go from the police ranks on uh, on down, the majority of these uh, corrections officers who are KKK members and are blatant outright racist, and who have all these Negroes in cages so they can beat them and torture them and rape them and treat them like crap for their entire lives, and then retire and collect salaries. These people can't even make it as cops. So they take the next job and go work for a private prison for twelve, thirteen dollars an hour. I mean, it's so prevalent throughout our system. How can you look at plantation slavery? How can you see what went on for hundreds of years on plantations and then also throughout the cities and the communities, every place where settlers set up towns and whatnot, black folks being uh, discriminated against along these same lines, abused along these same methods, by these same types of people, you've got to be able to recognize the same spirit in these folks for these hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the exact same thing that was going on then is going on now. Somebody is totally unfit to have any other job. There's a straight up racist person that don't mind killing, that don't mind destroying somebody's life. Never batting an eye about it. The sad thing too is this chick I think is uh, Hispanic. I think so. Uh, she looked dark skinned to me on the video. Yeah, but you know who she's endorsed by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know how they do. They'll get our own uh uh what's his name? Sheriff Clark. They you know, they they'll get they'll take uh like we was talking about on my page the other day, talking about this uh, Anthony Johnson. You know, they'd love to take somebody that's that ain't all white and have them do do some dirt in a heartbeat, you know, if you're willing. And the thing is, our people 
and not just black folks, but like, you know, even with, with some Latinos. I mean, people can see that racism, white supremacy has yet to be toppled. And a lot of people just lose hope in the fight. A lot of people don't believe that this situation can be changed. So they join the side of the oppressor willingly. You know, they willingly go in because that's the winning side. That's where they want to be. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care about right and wrong. They don't care about a legacy of truth or, or being some person with integrity. They want dollars. They want a title. They want to feel secure in the system. So they're willing to go do whatever it takes. If that means harassing and macing and beating and robbing and stealing and killing and raping and everything else we've talked about, they're happy to do it. Yeah happy to do it and there's some that just do it without even thinking twice like to them it ain't nothing wrong you know we got a million cops a million cops across America right now and that's thanks to the Clinton's crime bill and when you think about that with all of these cops roaming our streets if every single one of them just inadvertently because the law is wrong and they had to enforce the law sent two or three people in their career for their entire career to prison unjustly, all you got to do is multiply that. That's three per person. Let's say only half a million of them are actually involved in the arresting process of the one million. That's still a million and a half people per career. So every 20 years, another million and a half people unjustly in prisons. And it's so easy to do. You know, it's, it's this third strike. I'm sorry, dude had five hours worth of weed. He was on probation. This is his third strike. He's got to get 20 years. Ain't nothing we can do about it. Yes, there was something you could do about it. You could have said, you know what? Screw that weed, dude. Get out of here. Go home. You could have did that from the very beginning. Instead, you are more concerned with order than with peace. You're more concerned with law than with justice. You're more concerned with what it is you do every day and get paid for than whether or not it's right or wrong. Quotas. I'm more concerned with quotas. I got to give a shout out to Ken Williams, by the way. Ken Williams uh, just recently participated in a panel discussion uh, where he was brought in as an expert on police brutality, and I believe the keynote speaker was Melissa Alexander Perry. And this was out in San Francisco where they're going through the same dramas right now where they have this police force who have been communicating with each other via email using racist texts like it's not against the law to put an animal down so killing black people is okay. Things like that. They've been communicating in San Francisco and he's out there fighting against it and uh, shout out to him. I also understand that he recently uh, got his own show on TV One and they just started doing uh, the production yesterday. So good luck. And if you ever need some abolitionists on the program to put the word out there, give us a yell. Indeed, and congratulations to him as well. Uh, he spoke um, last week or I think at least before the holiday, he spoke about um, tentatively being offered, or maybe that might even be a real deal of being offered his own uh, uh, network television program. Um, I forget which which network he said it was going to be on, but he he did confirm, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that he's that he's going to be uh, uh, you know getting some airtime there to to continue. So we're going to continue to to court this brother and try to work with this brother and make sure that he is a, a well informed and and. Uh, passionate abolitionist because I know he's about police reform and social injustices and you know some of the uh, familiar 
uh, outlying and kind of kind of marginal intersecting themes and terms and all of that. It just kind of feels like when I talk to him that he's not quite ready to say straight up, you know, slavery still going on and this and that and the other. You know, we had some long conversations with him uh, on my page a while back, and I don't know if we ever really got to a point where he just was able to just settle it within himself. Like, look, okay, I realize it's still going on. I'm going to fight to end it. I, I think he still was trying to kind of play with us a little bit. Man, well, let's hope that uh, we have some influence on his discourse. It's the best we can know at this point. But the more we get the message out there, the better. More of our wise and intelligent minds that are influenced by this change that we're trying to put across, the better it goes. I think you know, after the discussions that we've had with him collectively, he understands our position a lot clearer now and in a very large de- a degree agrees with us. You yeah. know, um, yeah. not speaking of him specifically, but there just seems to be, um, it's like slavery is the evil whose name shall not be spoken. You know, for some <laughs> people, they just can't speak that word. They just can't say it. They just can't say it. It's just some mental block. You know, uh, they just they don't want to speak his name because if they speak the name, then it becomes a reality, and and right, they right. haven't you know accepted that reality yet. It's like they got a foot half in the matrix and a foot half out. You know, so, right? Yeah. Well, when you speak the word, then you're responsible for what you do with it. If you ignore it, you can pretend. You know, what they say, the elephant in the room. I mean, you know, if you ignore it, you can just walk in and out the room and pretend like it's not there but if you speak it speak to it well now everybody obviously sees well which way do you handle it and if you know in your heart that it's real and you speak it and you lie and say it's not going on or you lie and you say it's not real or you lie and you say that it's anything less than what it is well then you're a liar and you know your conscience and your own conviction is going to destroy you but if you speak it and you admit to what it is well now you're responsible for helping to abolish it and it's work people it's a job it's a day-to-day job that you have to keep doing because it's not over. So you can't just have one day where you thought about it and you cared and you made a post and you talked to somebody and then you went back to your life and ignored it. Those millions of people are still going in and out of our jails. Those millions of people are still being preyed upon in cities like Ferguson where we told you, what, two years ago, three years ago, about how they were destroying those communities by raising the municipal budget year after year by millions of dollars off the same number of people tightening down the ranks on those people on parking tickets all kinds of crazy and and false uh, traffic stops and whatnot. we've told you about cities all over the country that are having amnesty days over so many thousands and thousands of active bench warrants it's for bogus uh, violations in the first place but this is revenue generation we told you about New York City what was it 1.9 billion dollars in fines last year that's a new record for them they're generating their revenue off of this cash cow so when you say something about it and you ignore it it's not going away those people are still dealing with that but in uh I guess maybe if we segue from this into uh I kind of wanted to talk about that Wells Fargo that Wells Fargo cuz when we talk about people that don't listen to us I've been hard on Black Lives Matter many many times over these last few years and here we go again with Black Lives Matter right in the middle of some mess let's go with it Oh man this was an article in the Intercept uh that that mentioned 
it's I'm kind of halfway giggling because I'm looking at it because it's our brother D. Ray McKeeson again. You know, his image being used, uh, and it's a Wells Fargo logo right there, you know, superimposed almost right over his face. Like, and we've told you Wells Fargo is blatant about being invested in private prisons. Like, don't care. Uh, we've also, in this article, is talking about another aspect of the issue, though, with the uh, predatory lending, uh, the subprime lending and all of this. Wells Fargo was one of the leaders in that. And this is from The Intercept. It says, uh, Wells Fargo's sordid practice of steering minorities into, exploit into exploitative mortgages burst into public view after the housing crash in 2008. But to a black business group the bank has partnered with by donating half a million dollars, that's ancient history. The U.S. Black Chambers, USBC, an organization dedicated to quote-unquote growing black business, has been collaborating on programs with Wells Fargo since 2014. Well, first of all, I don't believe in this U.S. Black Chambers. I don't care who you send to me. I don't care who comes to, to defend it and talk about it and whatever. If you knew that someone owned a plantation and generated so much revenue from that plantation that they could go ahead and hand a handful of Negroes a couple thousand dollars to be able to, you know, be enterprising and, and put on some suits and ties and go have meetings and discuss how to be good businessmen, would you have a problem with where that money came from? So we've told you that Wells Fargo is open and not at all ashamed of their investments in partnerships with private prison slave companies, let alone this predatory lending that's going on, because that hasn't changed. Those, those loans are still going out like they were before. They haven't changed anything. It's still happening to people. But anyway, back to the story. So USBC. Uh, Wells Fargo sponsored a USBC luncheon held last week uh, as a bridge. It, it turned out to be a bridge too far for some observers. The luncheon discussion was titled From Black Panthers to Black Lives Matter. The movement continues. So here we go with this controlling the narrative or attempting to control the narrative BS once again. One panelist was D. Ray McKisson, a former candidate for mayor in Baltimore and a high-profile Black Lives Matter activist. The Wells Fargo branding was prominent, and it is. Uh, we'll get the link up on the page if Brother Max hasn't already put up. We'll put the link up on the New Abolitions page so you can see this guy. The event drew scorn from people and sensed that black activism would be linked with Wells Fargo. Dwayne David Paul, a minister at St. Peter's University in New Jersey, tweeted, Liberal reformist politics in a nutshell. Black Liberation, brought to you by organizations that prey upon black folks. Indiana-based writer Frederick DeBurr drew attention to an event in a, in a post on Facebook writing, This is Why I Drink. Uh, McKisson, who spoke on a panel with Ron Busby, the president and CEO of the U.S. Black Chambers, tweeted in response, I didn't make or approve this graphic, and Wells Fargo didn't sponsor or pay me. You want a conspiracy here, and there is none. Well, see, brother, there is a conspiracy. It's just that you either choose not to, or you may not have the ability to see the conspiracy that you are continually wrapped up in. How many times are we going to tell these Black Lives Matter people to, I mean, we keep pulling their coat. We keep telling them they slip showing. We keep giving them the information. We keep telling them what's the real problems. We keep telling them all this information that we're getting that's leading directly to them being on folks' payroll. 
I mean, on and on. But they don't give us any response. They ignore it and act like it's not happening. And these kind of incidents continue to occur. But the events organizers made no such effort to distance themselves from Wells Fargo. In interviews with The Intercept, two board members for the U.S. Black Chambers offered Wells Fargo without prompting as an example of a beneficial corporate partner. I'm hoping that people are listening to this and grasping what's going on. These are black, quote-unquote, business leaders, U.S. black chambers. That sounds official, don't it? And I'm sure around the country in all sorts of black metro areas and neighborhoods where there's some businesses and there's uh, frats and sororities and educated folks and they on and on and on with all of this, what, you know, the talented tenth of the, of the new millennium. These people are, are walking hand-in-hand hand with this BS, and this is who is funding them. This is why, part of why we're not able to make progress in so many areas because the people who are educated, the people who have titles, the people who are in positions guarding the door, they're not opening the door and letting us in. They're guarding the door. They're figurehead placed. They are black faces with white minds who are sitting at the door keeping the masses of Negroes who need to come on up out of this mess, keeping them from coming in. They look like advanced, but they're not advancement. They look like change, but they're not change. This is going on systematically across the country. It says Wells Fargo has donated to the USBC since at least 1999. Its donations have been used to give grants to black, chamber, black chambers of commerce, including the Heartland Black Chamber of Commerce in Kansas City, the Fresno Metro Black Chamber of Commerce in Fresno, California. Funding has also been used to create webinars on how to get loans and how to support the Black Male Entrepreneur Institute. They said, uh, this uh, Aubrey Stone defended Wells Fargo, saying obviously they're trying to do the right thing. There were a lot of people caught up in the in this scenario, talking about the banking, some on purpose, some by accident. Stone is also president of and CEO. See, he's got his titles. So he's not going to change. He's a, he's a, this is a Sheriff David Clark in the business world. This is a Negro with a title, with a job, with some money, with a name, with some uh, a reputation that he is not going to let go of for the advancement of his people it, by no means. This man will die with his hands gripped around white supremacy, holding on to it as long as they've given him butter biscuits. He's the CEO of the California Black Chamber of Commerce in Sacramento, another group that receives funding from Wells Fargo. Do you think that this fool would ever tell the truth about what's going on? This is where he's getting his money. This is how he is allowed to be the CEO. This is how he gets this is how he gets his uh, women if he likes girls. I'm sure he throws that around. I'm the CEO of the Ch California Black Chamber of Commerce. Come on with me and they go with him. I'm sure this is what he talks about at his at his kids career day when he goes in. At the church he's on the board. They love him. He's respected because he's the CEO. This is what we're dealing with is people walking around in their ego, in their lives. Their life is more important than ending slavery. This is a prime example. Black Lives Matter and the members that either don't fact check and don't care about being associated with this, and these individual people that are being named as members and CEOs and, and whatever of black chambers of commerce all over the country. Fellas? Well, I want to throw some history onto this. Wells Fargo, as regards to its relationship to the transatlantic slave trade. Wells Fargo, Georgia Railroad and Banking Company, and the Bank of Charleston 
owned or accepted slaves as collateral. They later became part of Wells Fargo by way of Wachovia. Also in the 2000s, Wells Fargo targeted blacks for predatory lending. Now these are historical facts that we know about them from the past and their connection to slavery. Now, recently, Wells Fargo has been uh, portraying himself as trying to do the right thing by divesting from their shares in the GEO Group. And according to Prison Legal News, it says, while Wells Fargo and company has sold off much of the stock it once owned in private prison company, the GEO Group, amid a divestment campaign targeting the multi-billion dollar bank, it has concurrently increased its shares in Corrections Corporation of America. After initially selling off around 33% of its holdings in the GEO Group stock in 2012, Wells Fargo continued to divest from the GEO in the mutual funds it controlled. As of June 30, 2014, the bank owns 7,425 shares of GEO, valued at $272,000. Previously, it had owned 4 million shares. However, Wells Fargo has steadily increased its stake in CCA and owned 1.8 million shares in the company valued at 37 million as of June 30, 2014. You see the shell game they're playing on you? Oh, we're going to do that from private prison, no more geo group. So they switched from the number two private prison to the number one private prison and just take it out of their pockets and put it in the next one. They're going to make their money on slavery one way or another. Wells Fargo owes reparations. And that's the bottom line. This is something that goes along with that too. Uh, as you were talking about those numbers, they said after they, you know, moved those shares around and dropped some shares of you and all that, they said Wells Fargo says that protest and media attention are not the reason it sold off shares in Geo Group. I mean, do you really want to be associated with that right there? When To say, now this is a bank. This is not some autonomous entity that just exists without public support. These people need customers to even exist. So to tell potential customers, look, y'all got mad at us, and you, you called us out on what we was doing, and yeah, you know, it's sketchy or whatever. Yeah, we got caught, but that's not why we stopped doing it. Who does that? You you catch you catch Denny's spitting in your eggs and, and they don't do it anymore. Well, we didn't stop doing it because you called us. I mean, who says we didn't stop doing the wrong thing because the people called us out on it? They said we didn't do it because of that. Uh, we sold off some of our shares in Geo Group, uh, and these reductions are a part of routine maintenance of our portfolios. According to uh, one of the representatives, Portfolio managers are focused on "quote unquote" doing the right thing for clients and shareholders. So it just turned out that that wasn't such a good investment. Eric M. Oja, an equity as analyst with S&P Capital IQ, backed that up, saying that such a shift was "quote unquote" a little of an anomaly, but nothing too strange for a financial institution as large as Wells Fargo. Even though they scaled down investments in Geo Group, private prisons show no sign of diminishing. Now, they also are not just the black folks that's involved in the prisons, but they're, uh, of course, uh, pre preying on the, the, the immigrants that are trying to come to the country. I mean, that's one of their biggest things that they, that they get is the, is the immigration money. So it's just bad all the way around, man. And these Negroes in the middle of it and either don't want to talk about it or are too dumb to know. You know, when I think of what we are dealing with today with prisons, 
it just makes me remember the black coats and how they came to the conclusion that they could continue slavery by simply criminalizing black people. And they would put them in these prisons with other criminals and expect no one to know the difference. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back. The Journey Collection by Jamila. This business has been running for about three years already. My business is full of funky, fresh, and modern bows. My bows were made for cancer patients. My bows are also for girls who maybe felt a bit less of themselves. I wanted girls to feel confident when they put my bows on. My bows are just here to help a girl's self-esteem. Now, I'm ready to grow my business. And since I'm a millennial kid, what better time to do it than now? Thanks for helping me live my dream! Woo! You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts, live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, as we were going off, uh, we were having a conversation there. I think we're going to move on to the next story. There's a couple of them that I'd like to squeeze in before we move into our final segments. The one, uh, for instance, comes from Crime Watch Daily. It's a video we already have on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find it there. And it's an example of what's being used for children at risk, and it's very much like the Scared Straight campaign. And I'm watching this video right now. I've got it frozen on the scene where there's two black men who are dressed in guard uniforms holding a nine-year-old boy in the air by his legs and arms with his face in a cell occupied by men who are serving time in prison right there. Those men are threatening him, screaming at him, at one point, one of the guards even mentions that he's going to end up in there where they're going to rape him on a regular basis. This is a young nine-year-old boy they're doing this to. Now, see, in the normal world, when a child has a crisis with their identity, what it is they're doing, the wrong decisions that they make, people have an opportunity to take them to psychiatrists, therapists, who will work with them slowly and surely to get a correct thinking. 
oftentimes when it's troubled youth, you know, you could do things like take them out of their community and show them uh, beauty in the world, take them to places they've never seen before, give them a reason to be inspired, to want to be more, to do more, to love people, to see other people doing good things so they can follow examples. But in our world, this imperfect world, when you're apparently poor or a minority, you get held in the air by a couple of thugs who are feeding you to sharks and you're nine years old. Imagine the trauma on a person's, a child's life when this is done and the messages that are being embedded into their heads. There is an alternative, but you chose to torture children. I in no way approve of this type of therapy, if that's what you're calling it. It is a shame and it's disgusting. And along the way, you're admitting to your crimes. Like telling this child that they're going to be raped on a regular basis because as a guard, you must obviously know what's going on in that prison. Some of the inmates who these children, innocent children, who had never been convicted of anything, they were just being, they were at risk, so they were brought in this scared straight style campaign. Uh, they will never be the same. I don't expect them to, but they were put into positions where they were literal murderers, people who were doing time for murder there, verbally assaulting and threatening these children. It's a damn shame, y'all. It's just a damn shame. There's so many other ways to help our kids. Traumatizing them is not an answer. Using fear tactics and torture doesn't help anybody, especially children. Show them there's something better. We got enough money to arrest them. Every child in New York that goes to a private prison is worth $350,000. I'm sure somewhere along that $350,000 line, you can find enough for therapy. I don't know. What do you think, guys? I think uh, I have young children, you know, and uh, a lot of what we do and a lot of, of my motivation is always coming from seeing my son's face you know in my mind when I'm applying these horrible situations like just trying to wrap my mind around him I see my son's face um, I see my son's face in this little boy and I think uh, of my nephews I think of you know my nieces I think of, of, of little children that I know you know in my world or whatever that, that are, are with me and I think what separates us maybe is not always just even our, our knowledge of how things are. I think, as we've discussed before, the scientific proof that has been laid out that there are just uh, there's some issues with empathy, um, and, and this is what it is costing us. It's it's difficult for these people to process what they're doing unless it's them seeing their own in the situation you know if you had a, a, a little white kid being shoved in the prison cell and told he's going to be are you kidding me that prison would be the prison would be shut down let alone would the guard be fired his face would be all over the place let a black guard take would Obama allow that to happen to one of his daughters man so hmm. this is what I'm, I mean this is our issue man is the empathy problem it's not even, I mean, we're dealing with education, yeah, and awareness, yeah. People changing their minds, yeah. But empathy, I think this is almost like on a soul level. Like, I just don't understand how you could do something like this to a child. And, and it definitely angers me, and it, it makes me feel like uh, 
this is the this is the fight side you know this is the the war side that comes out in you when you really look at little children you know when you when you see that these children and we know that this country like we said spent over 300 years importing <laughs> little black children from Africa you know hundreds and hundreds I, I of was years. reading something about that yo hunting that <clears throat> that I had not known that most of the victims of the uh, transatlantic slave trade were teens, were in yeah. their teens, you know, 14, 15, around those ages, children. Yeah. Bizarre, man. I mean, just it really... It breaks my heart, too, bro. just breaks my heart to see the imagery that I'm seeing, in mm -hmm. particular because, as I said, it was two black men in uniform holding this black child. And then if you go a little further, it's two black women holding a black girl and doing the same to them. And see, I understand that these two women and those two men are the results of something else. So when they put that narrative out in the beginning of Roots saying Africans were enslaving Africans and we just came along and exploited their greed, this is what they're talking about right there. Those are Africans enslaving Africans while a white man exploits your greed. And you're yeah. doing it for what? Feel you on that. Paycheck, 600, 500 a week? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, again, you know, we, there's, in my mind, no point in debating what happened or who all was engaged in it two, three, four hundred, five hundred years ago when we, I'm looking at the present. Modern day slavery and everybody is participating. You know, on, on the GO group, second largest private prison in slavery, two black men sit on that board. Uh, we've done the stories on the black wardens and stuff who end up getting busted because they go outside of the parameters for permitted legal slavery and try to make a little couple extra butter biscuits behind Master Pat and what have you. So, uh, you know, I care not to debate about if Africans sold other Africans into slavery and all this and that. And, and I'm trying to figure out the problem that's going on right in front of our faces. Yes, right in front of our faces. Just the idea that the GEO groups, the subsidiary G4S, is the largest private employer across the entire continent of Africa says so much, so much terrible circumstances. Well, we got to get into our, our uh, regular segments with our riders and our abolitionists in profile. Um, let's just shout out any story that we might want people to look, to look out for. One I'd like you to check out on our page is Nestle admits to using slave labor in Thailand. Uh, that's the chocolate company, Nestle, that makes the chocolate bars and all the drinks and stuff like that. They have admitted they're using slave labor in Thailand. Now think about it. This is an American company. If they'll do it there, you can best believe they'll do it here as well. Uh, another story that I would like you to be aware of is there is a new program that is out now that predicts crime in advance and it's some software that was created and apparently the software has determined to be racist in itself so you might want to check out that story any other stories fellas you guys want to shout out to the people well just one quick one um, you mentioned the chocolate and what have you. I've been seeing some stories that, you know, we're talking about slavery. And we're not slavery deniers, but we focus on legalized slavery as practiced by state actors. 
and corporations mm-hmm. and what have you. But these corporations are also in other nations working with other individuals and whatnot to enslave people outside of convictions of crime and what have you. So I, I just want to say, because I saw an article said that Africa produces 95% of the world's uh, cocoa, but they only get 5% of the profits, you know? So, um, yeah, man. And those and those are little African children that are producing that. All of these right, resources, right. digging in the ground with their right. hands to get diamonds out, digging in the ground, going down in 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 wells and in caves and uh, uh, mines and whatnot to get the resources out with their hands, naked, so they don't steal. The folks that stealing, making them do it naked and making them search them and all this little children so they don't steal and the cocoa plants little children carrying the heavy weight of these bags and dragging this stuff and they got to make weight just like on the plantation days little children got to make weight at the end of the day folks this is really going on for real and i mean it's it's, you got to change your mind like max says you just you got to change your mind got to change your mind I got one more thing I want to give to you. Maybe it'll change your mind. There's an instance in a jail where a man was arrested. Uh, Again, he was paralyzed by the police, throwing their knees in his back, tossed into a jail cell, and left there for five days to die. He asked for water, and they would toss it over to the side of him. Uh, For five days, they put food there, which he never touched, couldn't move. He begged for help, begged for help, and these people came and went, came and went, denying him any help whatsoever until he eventually died. This is something that you would see during the Holocaust or somewhere overseas you would expect. But it's really happening right here in the United States of America by heartless individuals who are doing this every day with nothing more than a paycheck. So check out that video. If that don't convince you that we need to change our minds right now, nothing will. Going to move into our our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. We want some good news for a change. Somebody coming to freedom. And this week it is Marvin Lamont Anderson. He became the 99th person in the United States to be exonerated due to post-conviction DNA testing. He was only 18 years old when he was convicted of robbery, sodomy, an abduction and a rape. Anderson was released on parole 15 years after that, but it took another four years for him to be exonerated. Imagine spending all those years in prison being accused of crimes so terrible that you'd never committed. On July 17, 1982, a young woman was raped by a black man whom she said was a total stranger. After she reported the crime, a police officer singled out Anderson as a suspect because the perpetrator had told the victim that he had a white girl. And Anderson was the only black man the officer knew who lived with a white woman. Investigation and trial. Because Anderson had no criminal record, the officer went to man, look at me, a black man with a white wife with no criminal record. And this is the guy you pick. Because he had no criminal record, the officer went to Anderson's employee employer and obtained a color em- employment photo identification card. The victim was shown the color identification card, along with six black and white mugshots, and identified Anderson as her assailant. Within an hour of the photo spread, she was asked to identify her assailant from a lineup. Anderson was the only person in the lineup whose picture was in the original photo array shown to the victim, and the victim identified him in the lineup as well. Of course, you don't see, yeah, you see, you just saw pictures. 
at trial, the victim testified in detail, recording the assault, and again identified Anderson as her assailant. The seriology work completed by the Virginia Bureau of Forensic Science was uninformative. From the very beginning of the case, people in the community became aware that the most likely suspect was another black man named John Otis Lincoln. The bicycle that had been identified as being used by the assailant was identified by the owner, who said that Lincoln had stolen it from him approximately a half hour before the rape. Although Anderson requested that his attorneys call both the owner of the bicycle and Lincoln as witnesses, his counsel declined. An all-white jury convicted Anderson on all counts, and he was sentenced to 210 years in prison. In 1988, John Otis Lincoln came forward and admitted his involvement in the crime in an effort to clear Anderson. At a state hearing in August 1988, Lincoln confessed and offered details of the crime under oath and in open court. Nevertheless, the judge, the same judge who presided over the original trial, refused to vacate the conviction. In the years after Anderson's conviction, when DNA testing had become widely available, Anderson sought to prove his innocence of the crime. After his lawyers were told by the police, prosecutor, and court that the rape kit and its contents had been destroyed, Anderson contacted the Innocence Project, and his case was accepted in 1994. In 2001, Dr. Paul Ferreira, director of the Virginia Division of Forensic Science advised the Innocence Project that certain physical evidence from the case, including sperm, samples recovered from the victim's body had been located in a laboratory notebook of the criminalist who performed conventional serology in 1982. Had the criminalists followed policy and returned the partially used swabs to the rape kit, all evidence in this case would have been forever lost. After requests for DNA testing were denied, the Innocence Project, in conjunction with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, finally won access to DNA testing in 2001. The results excluded Anderson as the perpetrator, and when it was run through the Virginia's Convicted Offender DNA database, it matched two inmates. Although the identity of these men has not been officially revealed, it appears that one of the inmates is John Otis Lincoln. On August 21st, 2002, Virginia Governor Mark Warner granted Anderson a full pardon. He had spent 15 years in prison and four years on parole fighting to prove his innocence. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and welcome you to freedom, Brother Marvin Lamont Anderson. Salute. Salute. Man, the same judge said no. And, you know, all of these people who were involved in this man's 15 years of lost life and arrest and all that, none of them are facing any kind of charges. None of them. This happens every day here in the United States of America, more often than not, to black men. Every day. Every single day. And not just, I mean, of course, to black men, black women, black children. But also, there's some people that maybe we'll never be able to care because we said black, you know, whatever. But also, this is happening at an alarming rate, like we remember our abolitionist brother, George Malacroft. This is happening to the mentally ill in this country, and this country has a mental health illness epidemic. We're not talking about a cottage industry here, people. We're talking about a nation that has 
I think the total last I read was something under four, like thirty six thousand or thirty seven thousand uh, people with mental illness issues that are actually in state care across the country, but nearly four hundred thousand mentally ill individuals who are locked up in state prisons around the country. So this is the this is how we're dealing with the homeless issue. This is how we're dealing with mental illness issues is throwing people in prisons and you can best believe if we're reporting on and you seeing hundreds and hundreds of exonerations of people that aren't even mentally ill that are getting I mean regular folks that could to some degree or another try to defend themselves that, that have their wits about them that have family and friends that could vouch for them and alibis and jobs and lives and have never done anything like this and just get thrown in there what do you think is happening to mentally ill people it's an epidemic that we still have not uncovered of innocent, mentally ill people locked up in these prisons in America. Man, y'all better get active and do something to turn this around. Or we, or this place is, can't stand. Can't stand. Well, we need to move on to our next segment. We've only got a few minutes left, so uh, we'll try to squeeze it in. There are uh, two links that I had for our abolitionists in profile. I'll read the one that's talking about a movie coming out with him included, and I'll post the more lengthy history of uh, this abolitionist in profile, who is Wilbur, William Wilberforce, 1759 to 1833, known as the politician. Cue the music, Scott. Wait a minute, William Wilberforce is not a household name, particularly in America in the 21st century. Unless you are a student of British history or aware of Ohio's Wilberforce University, the first private black college in the United States, you are unlikely to be familiar with the British Member of Parliament who led a 30-year struggle to abolish slavery and the slave trade. That might change in the coming months with the nationwide release of the movie Amazing Grace. The film was to have been shown Friday a week ahead of the official release at Wilberforce University. Starring Lone Gruford in the title role, the film is directed by Michael Apted, coal miner's daughter, The World Is Not Enough, 49 Up, and features an esteemed cast, including Albert Finney, Michael Gamboon, Rufus Sewell, Ciaran Hines, and African singer Yosal Denour, or Nidor as real-life characters taken from the history books. How far the film's distributors will have to go to build an audience for Amazing Grace can be seen by the fact that even Gruford, who grew up in Wales, admitted in a recent phone interview that I was sort of ignorant that Wilberforce was the reason why the slave trade came into fruition. The slave trade act came into fruition. I was educated myself by reading the script and going on to play the part. But added the actor, who is probably best known to American audiences for his starring role as Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic, in Fantastic Four, and as Horatio Hornblower in the series of important TV movies, I'm sure the film will be educating a whole new generation of people toward this subject. The subject is the effort by British abolitionists from the late 1780s through the first decades of the 19th century to persuade the British public, or at least the male property holders, who were the only ones allowed to vote, to end slavery in the British Empire for tactical reasons. They decided to first attack the slave trade and then take on the issue of slavery. Wilberforce, the son of a wealthy merchant, was already known as a brilliant orator and deep pious man when radical abolitionist Thomas 
Clarkson Sewell, a former African slave named Oladu Equano, and others approached him about joining their cause and leading the fight in the House of Commons. According to the movie, Wilberforce was encouraged in his endeavors by his good friend, Prime Minister William Pitt, the younger Benedict Cumberbatch, and his minister, John Newton, a former captain of a slave ship who had renounced slavery and entered the ministry. It was Newton who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, which is featured in the song. We here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you. Salute. Salute. This is the dude that led the fight to end slavery in in Britain. Like he was the main character, so I thought it was worth giving his story as well and how it came to be. Yeah, yeah. I seen that movie a while back, man. It's a pretty good movie, actually. I didn't know um, at the time when I saw it, you know, the significance of of you know thirteenth. Uh, amendment exception and and you know the 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 fight that we're in with abolitionism at, at you know right now, but it definitely um you know is a, is a is a good movie. I'm sure people can find it on demand or streaming or Netflix or so, you know something like that or whatever. But yeah, Amazing Grace is a pretty pretty good film. Well, I gotta say, brother, it's been a powerful show again. Uh, I, I appreciate these opportunities to come together and build with my brethren and with our listeners. Uh, and hopefully uh, open more minds to the idea that slavery never ended and it needs to. And we need to change our minds from thinking about reforming uh, these crimes and start treating them like crimes. Many things will change if we do. Uh, anybody want to make a final comment for the evening? Um, yeah, this Scotty, I'll start off. I just want to say that um, you know we just recognized Memorial Day and um, you know, we should never forget the sacrifices of all the Union soldiers. I think he, we did a profile on Owen Brown, one of the sons of John Brown, who later joined, you know, uh, the Union Army. And so, um, you know, just remembering that that slavery back then, um, as they knew it, they knew that it wasn't going to end itself. They, at some point in time, got tired of marching, got tired of protesting, and some of them just said, you know what, it, it's just time to put sword to back. Now, I'm not telling anybody to go out there and buy some broad swords and put them through George Zoli's back or anything like that, but I'm just saying slavery is not going to end itself, and we need everybody involved so that we can prevent a great bloodshed. But sometimes I wonder, just looking at just how evil and corrupt the people are who are who we call the system these are flesh and blood, blood people who work in the system and how evil they are and how they try to manipulate words to lie to you to to tell you something is sugar when they know it's you know it's something else uh that begin with s um that ain't tasting too sweet so you know um we just really gotta um step up spreading the message the abolitionist message because again you know i hate to keep harping on it um but i don't mind somebody's got to do it i just it just blows my mind that that 80 percent of black people who are voters would support a person like hillary clinton went for over a year maybe two maybe three before she even announced for president we've been documenting the clinton's role in modern slavery so that tells me man we got a lot of work ahead of us 
on the media side. That's it. Thank you. In slavery. Propaganda wars. I'll be real brief. Uh, peace to the abolitionists and death to these oppressors. If they're not going to quit, they're not going to go away. They're not going to take their filthy hands off of these billions and billions of dollars they're generating. And you heard tonight in the stories that that the would-be victims, this black folks right here amongst us, they're not going to step down from their positions of power and their titles that's being handed to them by the corporate slavers. So um, when you say peace to the abolitionists and you wish them well and you wish them protection and you, and you give them more power and you want them to be successful, I mean, there's only one way for the slavers to, to concede the power, to either give it up, which they ain't going to do, or die. Amen to that. I, I, I will keep it very brief as well. Um, I'm going to say the same thing I tell you every week. Abolition, y'all. Abolition. But we end slavery is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and